I've got the mediator between the head and the hands. And no, no, it's not that. Come on. <laughs> and I've got someone crossing a Rubicon. Hello there, welcome to Date Fight, it's the podcast where we take great moments from history and we pitch them against each other. Please take yap, I'm Nat Tapley and together we will take two snails and race them up the garden path of your mind to see which is the most historically entertaining. Is that what we do? Actually we do it with four of them rather than two, I've been saying two for the last 67 days but it's That's actually okay. four. It's fine. Yes, indeed. It's a, well. We, you, you'll get the hang of it. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just get on with it. Round one. Okay, then. Why don't you start us off, darling? I will do round one. I'm going to go back to the 10th of January, 49 AD, mm. when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, and this is where we get the saying "crosses the Rubicon." Prior to that, Caesar had been governor of southern Gaul. And the Rubicon was the river which marked the end of the Gallic territories and the beginning of Italy proper. And the Senate had said to him, yes, you can come back, but do make sure you leave your army (laughs) there. We don't really want armies wandering round Italy. Thank you. Near Rome. (laughs) I know you wouldn't be silly enough to do that, uh, but just leave the army there before you (laughs) come back and, and see us. And he got to the Rubicon with his army and he went, you know what, I think I'll take my army with me because I don't like the Senate. So he crossed the Rubicon with uh, all of his army. Some people say he had a supernatural apparition the night before which convinced him to do it. Uh, The Senate all fled from Rome and it led to Caesar's civil war, at the end of which Caesar became emperor in Rome. And this kind of unified the sort of Roman Empire, right? It, it, it was the beginning of the proper empire stuff. Is that right? Well, it's the beginning of sort of a dictatorial emperor without who didn't have to defer to the Senate. Who? Okay. The, I'm loath to say that the Roman Empire was ever really unified. In that, I think one of its strengths was that it took whoever was local, whatever local habits they had, and adapted itself pretty well to. Oh, we'll be like that over here because. All oh, right. So it's like Coca-Cola, where they changed the recipe for the different regions. Yeah, rather than being like the Americans trying to rule in Baghdad, it's like McDonald's being happy to have some McDonald's open in Baghdad. Right. Which usually, you know, which usually works with less bloodshed and lasts for longer. Right. This is the Big Max Romana. Yes. Quite pleased with that. I would, yeah. Well done, you. For me, that's quite classy. Yeah. What have you got? I've got an amazing story. This is the tenth of January, fourteen thirty, mm-hmm. and Philip the Good. Yes, the Burgundy. How would you rate us? How would you rate our Philip? Um, good, 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 very good. Yeah, extremely good. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, three, three, good. Philip the Good. Put number circle number three. Neither good nor bad, very bad or exceedingly bad. The Duke of Burgundy, he establishes uh, the Order of the Golden Fleece. Mm. This is to celebrate his marriage mm. to Isabella of Portugal. And this is the most prestigious, the most mm. exclusive and the most expensive order of chivalry in the world. It's only ever had 1,201 members Ooh. since its establishment. That's, it's really, that's fewer than the Order of the Garter. Much, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And why is it so expensive and exclusive? Well, because uh, you get a, a collar. This is the, the golden fleece thing. Mm. And it's fully coated in gold and it costs about $60,000. What? Yeah. Bonkers. So how do you get into a chivalric order? Uh, only by invitation, I think, from the other members. Oh. And there are some privileges uh, to being one of these knights. Nice. Uh, 
So uh, Charles V yeah. conferred on the order exclusive jurisdiction yeah. over all crimes committed by the knights. So basically, if <laughs> if you were one of those knights That's and you incredible. committed a crime... Only the other knights could tell you off. Only the other knights could arrest you. It had to be signed by six of them. And you didn't, if you, if there, if there was, uh, if you were charged and there was a trial, uh, you didn't have to go to prison. You would be kept in the gentle custody of your fellow knights. Hmm. It was pretty good. Not only that. Yeah, pretty sweet. Uh, the sovereign had to undertake to consult the order before going to war. So they had some political sway there. That's pretty good. Shall I tell you some of the noteworthy current members of the Order of the Golden Fleece? Please do. Uh, Felipe VI of Spain. Okay. King Constantine II of Greece. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth II, the Queen of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth Realms. I'm spotting a pattern here. And Enrique Iglesias. <laughs> So much for your pattern. <laughs> Didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> Why? Literally, everyone else is like Nicholas Sarkozy, Emperor Emeritus Akihito of Japan, King Constantine II of Greece, and Enrique Iglesias. Because you've got to have something on after dinner, haven't you? Yeah, he's the Bob Monkhouse of that particular fraternal <laughs> order. I mean, what's he doing on that list? What's he doing? That's crazy. Have you seen Philip the Good's Tower? No. It's still there. Is it good? In Dijon, I think it is, next to the mustards. Yeah. You can go and see Philip the Good's Tower. Wow. There's a good book about... What? What is... Uh, there's a good book about Burgundy generally called Lotharinger, which everyone should read. That's lots of fun. It takes it all the way through, all the way back to, you know, when we were talking about the strip between uh, France and Germany that was held by... Between Charles the Fat and Louis the German, all the <laughs> way up to the present day when it, it's become... Belgium, Holland, the Savoy, and bits of France and Germany. It's a very good book. Simon Winders, Lotharinger, and yes, go to Dijon, eat the mustard. It's very nice there. Obviously the mustard. And the stinky bum sausages. I beg your, Have an andouillette. I beg your pardon? An andouillette. It's a delightful French delicacy, a local delicacy to the northeastern part of France, mm. um, made of... It was described as chitlin sausage the first time I had it in an airport. Mm. Um, it is made from the intestine of a pig, mm. wound inside the intestine of a pig, boiled, um, so you really get the uh, scent of intestine of a pig, mm. uh, and then eaten with mustard. To take the taste away. <laughs> yeah, well, I imagine it, could, it certainly can't be too... Add to the aroma or indeed the texture of boiled pig intestine. I mean, there's the expression "happy as a pig," in but you're actually eating the. Yeah, it certainly smells like you are when you open it up. When the casing, not I say casing, it's just more intestine breaks. You're very aware of the solids that have passed through it. I love that people think that vegans are weird. Yeah, I know. <laughs> We're just eating broccoli, guys. <laughs> You're the ones I mean, doing the ways, freaky stuff the most with honest, the innards of an animal. It's the most honest dish I've ever attempted. It's gone. There is no. There is. Yeah. Come on, then. Yeah, yeah. You think you think you can eat parts of an animal? Do you? There you go. Yeah. Let's I'll have a go you, at that one. I'll give you animal parts. Very yep. good. Oh, not feeling so happy now, are you? Oh, you want to take it back and get a cheeseburger? No, you can't. Let's be honest. The cheeseburger's probably got the same constituent parts. It's the same bits, it's just precisely. If you spice it differently yeah. and present it differently, everyone will happily wolf yeah, yeah, it down. Yeah. Fair. 
Should we do the birthdays? Yeah, well, like, go <laughs> get a bucket. talking about bum sausage. <laughs> Happy birthday to Jared Kushner, who is the son-in-law to President Trump, and also, by an incredible coincidence, is a senior advisor to President Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Happy birthday to heavyweight grill expert George Foreman. And to also to Rod Stewart, who recently completed his train set, which made us all very happy. Happy death day to William Lord. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury whose attempts to reintroduce parts of the Catholic Mass to England led to his finishing his tenure with one fewer heads than when he started. (laughs) Also, happy death day to Carl Linnaeus, the father of taxonomy. Essentially, he told us how we can put things in categories. Before him, we couldn't play 20 questions at all. He was going, is it an animal? No. I don't know. I honestly don't. I have no yeah. idea. I've got no frame of reference for that. I think I think the opening question was always, is it a thing? Yeah. <laughs> well, in that case, we wouldn't have been able to do that one. Yeah. Is it a thing? Yeah. yeah. Uh, horse. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Happy death day also to Coco Chanel. Now, when I was looking this up, I thought I would check on something. And as she was a sort of rich fashionista of the... Uh, early 20th century what thing is it do you think that I checked uh, the uh, Im- involvement with Nazis that's exactly what I checked and guess what <laughs> she had loads of it <laughs> so she closed all her shops when the Germans arrived she was based in Paris she closed all her shops in uh, when the Germans arrived but many people said she hated the shops anyway because she was forced to employ Jews there and had been threatening to shut them since they had a strike in 1936 as soon as the Germans invaded she went to live at the Ritz which is where the German military were living she had an affair with a German diplomat and in May 1941 so she didn't own on her own Parfum Chanel which made Chanel number 5 she owned it with the Wertheimers two, two co-owners who happened to be Jewish so on the 5th of May 1941 wow. she wrote to the German authorities to claim sole ownership from the Wertheimers because they couldn't own property anymore because they were Jewish what she didn't know was that they'd already turned over their shares to a friend of theirs who gave it back to them after the war so ha ha Coco Chanel you didn't get your own way that time um, she then went on to spy for the Germans she had her own spy number was it five <laughs> it wasn't a book. it was a, it was quite a long number um <laughs> Uh, and documents released by the French government have shown that she was an agent who was trying to set up meetings um, with Winston Churchill in Spain. She kept going to Spain to try to set up secret meetings with Winston Churchill because she thought she could convince him to end the war um, on favourable terms to the Germans. So that's Coco Chanel. She, who knew, was a Nazi. But feel free to splash her essence all over yourselves. Well, to be fair, Mm. that all sounds really bad. Yeah. But she did invent little black dresses. The cereal that turns the milk brown. <laughs> <laughs> Although actually, whilst I was disparaging those people who apply Chanel Number no. Five, the Wertheimers, who she was trying to steal mm-hmm. Chanel Number no. Five from, were upset about her involvement with the Nazis because they thought it would make the perfume look bad after the war. Oh, brilliant! So they tried to cover up her involvement, not so they could keep. No, no. Just thinking about... <laughs> Just let's not... Don't make the perfume look bad, Coco. Come on. I'll forgive you for trying to steal everything I own. And 
happened to a big horrible Nazi. But let's not ruin the perfume. There are limits. I'm going to go to the 10th of January, 1927. Mm-hmm. And a stupendous film is released in Germany. It's one of the few German films you would have heard of. It is, of course, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Metropolis. Mm. And the message of the film... Is it, don't have a crazed scientist father who develops a robot to enslave an underworld of people who never see daylight. Yeah, it was buy local, shop independent. (laughs) It was... uh, (laughs) The mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart which is uh, the final little uh, title card that, that comes up in in the film. But do we know that? I mean, so much of it is lost. We don't have a complete copy, do we? Well, no. So maybe we, it's a bit afterwards saying, just kidding. We've got to about 95% of what it was, because uh, originally oh, okay. it was uh, criticised for being too long. It originally ran to 491 hours, <laughs> uh, which is about a month. Yeah. And basically uh, a consortium of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Paramount, I think, mm. uh, set up a sort of German company to, to buy the film and distribute it in America, but they cut it right down, and uh, Fritz Lang obviously was very unhappy about that. There have been so many versions of this film, mm. so many recuts, so many reversions and stuff. Uh, there have been lots of attempts made, particularly since the 70s, to restore the film. What's interesting is that even though... Uh, the original score uh, is very good mm. and still exists. It's not like it, it disappeared. Uh, the, the original score is there and you can get, I think, DVDs now with, with the original yeah. score as, as written. Uh, th- but that hasn't stopped people from having some... Philip Glass. Terror- well, Philip Glass would be great. In 1984, Giorgio Moroder mm. released a truncated version of it with a soundtrack <laughs> which had feature artists including Freddie Mercury... Oh, my word. Adam Ant and Loverboy. <laughs> Who's Loverboy? Incredible. So, uh, yeah, it was only in 2008 they found a, a damaged version of the film in a museum in Argentina. Mm. And then they found extra bits in New Zealand. Mm. And so, yeah, it's only in the last 10 years that, yeah. that we've had 95% of the original thing. And uh, it's been inscribed Great. on UNESCO's Memory of the World register, increasingly becoming relevant. <laughs> but uh, it didn't necessarily go down all that well at the time. H.G. Wells, mm. who knows a thing or two about sci-fi, yeah, uh, he accused it. He said, uh, he accused it of, quote foolishness, cliché, platitude and muddlement about mechanical progress and progress in general. Mm. He he did not think it was uh, very good. He called it quite the silliest film. <laughs> but do you know who do you know who loved it? Is it Hitler? Joseph Goebbels, well done. <laughs> well done you. Yeah, of course. Uh, so he he was thrilled by it and mm. he Goebbels approached Lang uh, off the back of it, and said, uh, we want you to make the films for the Nazi party now. Mm. Uh, and I don't I don't think he did. No, I don't think he left, didn't he? He left after he'd done M, I think, a few years later. He left Germany. Yes, he left Berlin uh, in 1933. Mm. 
uh, after he'd had a meeting with Goebbels. Right. So he so that was pretty early on. He was like, nope, I'm straight out of here. This is not for me. Yep. Nope. I can see where this is oh, going. I see. Mm-hmm. There's a great podcast I mentioned before called Behind the Bastards who did a great episode on Hollywood and the Nazis. And I, what would you say was Goebbels' favourite film of the late 1930s Hollywood film? Uh, Wizard of Oz. Nope. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's not. It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, oh, you're so close! <laughs> it's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Hey, which they decided was the most Nazi film to go out of Hollywood in all of the 30s. They loved it. The Nazis. They said because it showed the incompetence and intent, uh, inherent corruption of parliamentary systems, and it took one strong man against the system to overturn. It's got and, and inherently by showing one person struggling against the system they felt that was proving their point that the system was corrupt and that they were there draining the swamp and all of these things which we now like to see you know mr swift goes to washington as a championing liberal democracy but for the nazis they were like that's brilliant that's exactly that's making our point for us that film watch that are you sure it wasn't just mistranslated as messerschmitt goes to washington <laughs> <laughs> I certainly hope it was. <laughs> Very good. Do you know, I don't think I ever sort of pieced together, it's pathetic, but that, that Fritz Lang, who did Metropolis, mm. is Fritz Lang who directed all those brilliant black and white movies in Hollywood. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why I never really pieced those two together. Yeah, M is his last German one, isn't it? The one Because Peter Laurie comes over at the same time, I think. They, OK, that makes sense. And then they just do lots of serial killer films. Or else. 10th of January, 1776, Thomas Paine publishes Common Sense, which is his <laughs> book saying we should really have a revolution in America because the English are awful. Thomas Paine was originally born in England. He was English. He grew up as an underwear ma- maker of stays, oh. essentially the Anne Summers of the 18th century. <laughs> uh, and then he, um, he re- then he started writing pamphlets, pamphleteering. Um, and I'm going to read some bits from Common Sense because they still are Common Sense even after all these years. I want to be a pamphleteer when I grow up. Me too. I really do. I love this one. Oh, there's a good bit. Every Tory is a coward. For servile, slavish, self-interested fear is the foundation of Toryism and a man under such influence, though he may be cruel, never can be brave. <laughs> there we go. That was a good bit. Oh, there was this bit I like as well. Um... We are not the little people now, which we were 60 years ago. At that time, we might have trusted our property in the streets, or fields, rather, and slept securely without locks or bolts to our doors and windows. Ah. And I think that's true of any... Apparently, if you say 60 years ago, no one ever had locks. That's true now. It was true in 1776. I have a feeling that was true all through time. Yeah. People were saying, 60 years ago, you didn't have to lock your doors around here. Now look what's happening. (laughs) So you reckon 2080 will be saying that about... Uh, yeah, we'll be saying, oh, do you remember back in 2019? Yeah. You could. You didn't have to lock your doors. You didn't even have yeah. locks. didn't even know what locks were. I mean, you the did... doors were made of some sort of jelly. You could eat your way in. Yeah, I mean, you did get your number plates nicked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I think. Um, he was. I liked Thomas <laughs> Paine because he was. Uh, he had an argument with Edmund Burke when the French Revolution happened. Um, Burke was very against it. Thomas Paine was very for it. He wrote The Rights of Man. Um and then he believed in it so much he went over to try and join in. So he went to France, and although he said he wasn't English, he was American and had joined in the American Revolution. Um, when he got to France, he refused to learn French, proving that he was still slightly English. 
and <laughs> he got elected to the National Assembly of France. He what? became part of their parliament despite not speaking what? French. He had to talk through an interpreter the whole time. Wow. But he was he was upset by the time he arrived at the way the revolution was going because Robespierre had taken over and they wanted to execute Louis. He suggested instead that they send Louis to America or just send him away somewhere, send the king away, um, at which point he was told to shut up because he was a peaceful Quaker and so shouldn't be allowed to have an opinion on that sort of thing. And before too long, the French sentenced him to death and he was put in a cell... And every morning, someone would come round and write a, uh, an X on the door of everyone who was to be executed that evening. And every evening, people would come along and take the people from the X'd cells and drag them off to the guillotine. Um, and on the morning he was to be executed, the man drew the X on his door. But he had such a bad fever and cold that the governor had let him keep his door open. So when the people came by to pick everyone up to take them off to the guillotine, they didn't see the X on his door and he survived. And two days later, Robespierre fell from power and everyone was released on general amnesty and he didn't have his head cut off, despite coming very, very, very close. That's amazing. It's good, isn't it? X marks the snot. (laughs) I also like the fact that he was so enthusiastic about the French Revolution. It's going to be brilliant, the French Revolution. I've written pamphlets about how amazing it's going to be. There's going to be democracy. (laughs) There's going to be liberty. What? Hmm? You're putting me to death? Okay. (laughs) I do have quite a bad cold, though. Yeah, I've got a pamphlet about that, actually, which I'd really like you to read. Wow. Anyway, that's Thomas Paine, who uh, published Common Sense on this day in 1776. It's a good title. It is good. It's a good book. You should read Common Sense. I mean, it's a bit... Because he's saying we don't need any government at all, it gets uh, a bit uh, libertarian-y, anarchist-y, but that's fine. I mean, if you're going to err on the side of anything, erring on too little government is um, probably a better side to err on than way too much. Is it? Having too... Too over... Yeah, I think so. In fact, I'll tell you what, I'm going to read you his opening paragraph, which I think says pretty much that. Do it. (coughs) Here we go. Some writers have so confounded society with government as to leave little or no distinction between them, whereas they are not only different, but have different origins. Society is produced by our wants, and government by our wickedness. The former promotes our happiness positively by uniting our affections, the latter negatively by restraining our vices. The one encourages intercourse, the other creates distinctions, the first is a patron, the last a punisher. Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one, for when we suffer or are exposed to the same miseries by a government, which we might expect in a country without a government, our calamity is heightened by reflecting that we furnish the means by which we suffer. Government, like dress, is the badge of a lost innocence. The palaces of kings are built upon the ruins of the bowers of paradise. I'm just saying, Yeah. if you prefaced the word society and all of that with the word big, that all sounds very Cameronian to me. <laughs> I, I doubt he would have instituted a bedroom tax. He didn't like any taxes. Yeah, but who, who, who pays for the bins and the roads? Always. But he says society, you know, you, you no. people... Who, Massive infrastructure. What do you... Water mains. Well, no, he accepts that. I mean, he says 60 years ago we could have left our doors open. Yeah, you leave your door open because there's nothing in your house because you've had to leave it because there's no water and it's full of rubbish. <laughs> Just saying, it's it's a fun idea, but someone's got to pay for all that stuff. Yeah, but the thing is, at the moment, in, in America, people do have fire 
engines which are only go to houses which pay for them. It's not inconceivable that a society can run like so that. So you think that's a good model? Is that your, You're saying that's a good model? No, I'm not saying it's a good model. I'm saying that in the, 17th, the 18th century, it was a better model than having a king who could decided what you could wear, when you could eat, when you had to go to church, what religion you could ha- had to be, whether you could uh, say what you wanted to say, whether you could publish what you wanted to say, and who you could say it to without putting you in prison. Well, you know what I'm going to say to that? You I know what I'm going to say to that, don't you? Leave means leave. <laughs> very simple message. Fair enough. From a very simple mind. <laughs> I enjoyed that conversation. Thank you. Um, I learned a lot. Me too. Yes, that was lots of fun. Let's hope everyone else stayed tuned in rather than going, oh my God, they're at it again. <laughs> well, that was a good date fight. Hooray! Hooray indeed. Uh, we'll be back with another one tomorrow. Yes! Because that's what we do with our lives <laughs> now. Our thing this now. crushing, grinding, unrelenting, remorseless treadmill. We are hurling content into the meat grinder of time. Yes, but it will be there for posterity or until it stops paying for itself with advertising clicks. Uh, we will. <laughs> we will see you tomorrow for more lols, and uh, we hope that in the meantime you'll subscribe, share, rate, and review. If you would be so kind. Yes. And yeah, we'll see you tomorrow. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Do it three times. It yes. makes a difference, apparently. Tell your friend. Yeah, it do does. It. In fact, you can, uh, no, just just do it once. I mean, if you happen to unsubscribe and resubscribe. Well, I mean, you know, if you want to do that, that's a, that's a thing. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thanks, bye. bye.